Hello, and welcome to Dissecting Philosophy with Dr. McDonald. In this episode, we'll be continuing on reading through the section Total Domination in Hannah Arendt's The Origins of Totalitarianism. So firstly, then, we'll be stuck into a recap of last episode, and then we'll be having a look at the steps to total domination. And we're going to go through this in sequential order. So the first step, looking at killing the judicial in man. Then the second step, killing the morality in man. And then the third and final step is killing man's unique identity. So let's get started off with our recap of the last episode then. So, in the last episode, we had a look at the history of concentration camps. And one of the key topics that we covered was the Boer War, where the British Army had used concentration camps. And why did they do that? Because they had employed a scorched earth policy, burning people's homes and land and so the concentration camp was a place for homeless women and children to stay as well as stopping the commandos from gaining food as well as the fact that they imprisoned blacks to stop commandos also gaining food as well as labor for gold mines and we also touched upon the whole idea really that life in the camps is a world unto itself and is completely different and separate to the outside world. People are treated like things, excluded from the outside world altogether, are expandable, live their lives with an unknown duration and have no rights to their own body. And then we rounded off last episode with a discussion of how can we compare the ideas of the concentration camps? What exactly can we relate them to? And that is for the Russian camps, we related it into the idea of purgatory and the Christian idea of purgatory, essentially having gone into the camps in the first place for being counter-revolutionary and therefore the camps is a way of doing penance unless it's the annihilation camps which is solely based upon starvation and death ultimately. So aside from being that camp, if it was in the concentration camp idea of it or forced labor, then you also have that whole idea of simply doing work. You have a duration and eventually then you'll get out at some point and have done your penance ultimately to take it back into that sort of Christian idea. And for life in the Nazi concentration camps, Hannah Arendt gave us the idea what is this comparable to? Because there was a whole discussion of how difficult it is in the first place to imagine what life is like in the camps. She then gives us the whole idea of the Christianity idea again of hell. Why? Because like hell, the whole way in which the camps work is based upon torture and suffering and maximizing the greatest amount of potential for suffering of people at every given possible level of it. So we then move from last week's episode, starting in with the history of the concentration camps and building upon that idea of the concentration camps to further build upon this in a way 
in which we go towards that total domination of someone. So we first then come into this week's episode then with that first step of killing the judicial in man. How exactly does this work? How do you manage to kill the judicial and the law? Is because the camps themselves are put out with the normal judicial process and as well as the people who are placed within the camps are outside that normal judicial process because you have innocent people like Jews put into the camps alongside criminals who Hannah Arendt says once they've actually served their term then from prison they're put into the camps as well so you don't just have simply Jewish population in there we have a collection of different people in the camps all at the same time we have Jews criminals asocial elements religious offenders as well as political prisoners so we have a large collection of people all within the camp itself now what makes it really fishy is a way of putting it and very suspect is that is precisely all those ways that is out with that normal judicial process because how would it work in a traditional sense going back into kind of what we touched upon within the secret police episode you would have that whole typical process you have a crime you have the whole police investigation then the police arrest somebody uh, who they suspect has done the crime and then the person goes to jail or not it's all done through that whole process then you serve your time there's a duration and then after that the person's let out here you have just simply rounding up people who are identified by the ideology in this given instance we have the Jews in which they've done absolutely nothing wrong whatsoever and that people are just rounded up and herded into into the buses and so forth or trains and so on all to be put into the camps and so this then puts an extra level onto this because it's out with the normal judicial system that means that the normal judicial process can't protect someone because within the law in itself if it's done through the whole process even prisoners have rights and are protected by that system let's say they're assaulted by another prisoner then they're going to have a whole process within that whole system to add more years onto that person who assaulted the person in the first place prisoners are still protected within all the judicial process but once you get rid of that once it's working outside that in this shady way that it is suddenly then you're not protected by the law anymore and then we also have the whole part about having the prisoners there specifically Hannah Arendt says well this is done purely just for propaganda purposes and it acts as a means of a camouflage that nothing worse is happening other than what's deserving to happen to criminals so when people arrive at the camps in the first place and they see these criminals there then there's that immediate mindset of to yourself of oh okay here I am within this given 
system and eventually I'll be let out. So it has this whole camouflage and chameleon-like nature of it's going to appear to be one thing, but what's actually going to happen is going to be something incredibly quite sadistic and heinous. And of course, there's no adequate words for saying how mass murder takes place, of course. So we have all this collection of people within the camps. And one of the points that Arendt says is we have all this collection. So we have Jews and criminals, asocial types, religious offenders, political prisoners. You would then think to yourself, okay, you have a bunch of people in there, but they would just act as people, right? You would just have a bunch of people all from different backgrounds, all from different parts of life and so forth, you wouldn't think to yourself, hmm, suddenly you have one person then identify with the group, right? You wouldn't think to yourself, I'm gonna then identify myself with this other group called political prisoners, for instance. But that's exactly what happened. And it's what Hannah Arendt says as well. This is the grotesque part of it is that there is a set of groups within there and that each people is identified with that set of groups. Of course, it's all through that color-coded system and so forth that they put on and so on that indicates exactly who each group that you belong to in the first place. Now, here comes the part in which you think, well, okay, now you're part of a group. Then you could think, okay, we're in this horrible situation. We don't appear to be getting out anytime soon. There's absolutely heinous things that are happening, horrible stuff. Let's try and band together and get out of here. Let's try and do some form of great escape, as the film does. Let's dig tunnels. Let's get out of here in some way. But, in fact, that doesn't happen... Because one of the whole aspects of that is that solidarity is prevented. Why is solidarity prevented? And one of the answers to that is because torture destroys any possibility of opposition. And so, why exactly is that the case? Because if you have someone suddenly come up and act in such a way that they're going to be identified as an upstart person who's going to try and organize in the first place or it's a set of people they would be taken away and tortured and more than likely killed as well so this sets a clear example to anybody else who is there trying to also think about that here is exactly what's going to happen is that you're going to just be tortured and killed if you decide to do this. Not only do you have that with the idea of torture, but also we have within the groups themselves, nobody knows exactly which group is meant to be on the hierarchical tier, let's say, which group is better or worse than the others. So this is important because when you look at the Jewish population, of course, you know that they're automatically the ones at the bottom of the list that's going to be treated the absolute worst above everybody else. But the Jewish population don't know that themselves, necessarily. 
because you have it within that whole system you arrive at the prison camps everything appears to you like a prison and then you're put into groups but then the groups themselves don't say who's in what tier and where you belong exactly so again it has that whole prison-like mentality of it again coming back to people and then we also have the idea of arbitrary arrests, people being arrested. And this is where it stops the idea of free consent, as Arendt says. So this is where both parties agree with consent and is free from coercion in any given way and so forth. So what does this also do is that when we have the idea of suddenly someone's taken away and then is brought into a room to have a discussion with, then it, everything will be going completely in the opposite way. It's not going to be free from coercion. There's going to be coercion. There's possibly going to be torture and so forth as well. It's all going to be in a means of manipulation. It's either going to be do as I say, or there's going to be more or less just a severe set of consequences to that as well. So there's no free going back and forth between decisions, let's say, for this point. There's no one party making a set of lists and demands and the other party somehow agreeing with it. Of course not. The Nazis are the ones that are in complete control. There is no set of demands to be made. You either do as they say, or they'll torture you, or they'll kill you. It's as simple as that. And I've got a quote here as well from Hannah Arendt and it says in the long run no opinion can withstand the threat of so much horror and it really goes back into that point that you would think that there would be all that form of opposition and so forth but when you have all that prospect of death and torture that's facing you no opinion can precisely withstand all that amount of horror that's going to be facing people. And then we build upon this whole idea of horror by killing the morality in man, moving on to our second step. So from our first step, we had that whole idea of killing the juridical. Why does it get killed? Because everything's operating out with the norms of a juridical process so that is the camp itself and then everybody who's placed into the camp nobody is able to be protected by the laws whatsoever and everybody has to do exactly what the nazis say then we go on to the second part then going into killing the morality in man because then it goes back into our fight to try to do some sort of idea of good like a rebellion again and as Hannah Arendt says, there is no good and bad choice in the camps whatsoever. You can't make this work in a traditional ethical style of system. Why not? Because it's not a choice between good and bad, but rather it's a choice between murder and murder. So you ultimately have two absolutely horrific options on your hand. And we have some examples here. And the first one is that Hannah Arendt gives us the example from Albert Camus, which is the absolutely just horrific situation in which the Nazis gave a Greek mother this absolutely just heinous 
decision to make in that they made her choose which one of her three children should die. So we have that ethical problem right there is which one of your three children should die. It's a choice between murder or murder for you if you don't choose as well. So it's an absolutely, I mean, how in itself can anybody make that choice is another answer to that question. How could anybody be put in that situation? And of course, it happened. And how can you possibly choose? And then, of course, then comes in the even greater horror. Suddenly they might say, I'm going to make a countdown. And if you don't choose, I'm going to shoot you. And that's just in the absolute sickening examples in which we're working with of having just the choice between having to make an absolutely sickening choice or you die or someone else dies. Then there's also another example in which Hannah Arendt says in which the SS implicates people into their crimes. So this is what happened within the camps as well, is that we have inmates, criminals, political prisoners, as well as Jews, are all implicated in what they did. So then we have the other ethical dilemma as well, which also says you confront the dilemma of sending your friends to their death or helping murder other men who are strangers to you. Which equally, that's another choice between murder and murder again. But what Hannah Arendt says is what this does is ultimately divert the attention away from the SS and make it go to other people who are the ones who are implicated in it, like the criminals who are called capos. And we'll touch upon capo history in just one moment because there's another important point that we can make as well. Following on from the ethical choices that we've just had between murder and murder, where there is no choice to do good whatsoever, in that extreme horrific situation, you would think to yourself, well, suicide might become a viable option. If there's no other possible thing that can anyone do, why wouldn't someone just take their own life in that given situation? And the answer to that is even suicide is not an option because in that given way, even if they did commit suicide, then their family would die. So even the option of martyrdom is taken away. And it's something that Hannah Arendt says is that's not happened in any prior point in human history has the choice of martyrdom and so forth been taken away. But now it has been within the camps. So rounding off for the second step then for killing the morality man, there is no good that can be done and there is no martyrdom that can happen whatsoever because it is a choice between murder and murder. Let's go and touch upon the history of the capos just for a little bit here. And this is from the article 
called The Role of Capos in Concentration Camps from Thought Co. by Jennifer Ross. And it says here, Capos by the SS were prisoners who collaborated with the Nazis to serve in leadership or administrative roles over others interned in the same Nazi concentration camp. Capos played a vital role in the Nazi camp system as a large number of prisoners within the system required constant oversight. Most capos were put in charge of a prisoner work gang called Commando, and it was the capos' job to brutally force prisoners to do forced labor despite the prisoners being sick and starving. And it's also worth to note as well that most people hated the capos actually worse than what they did for the SS because they were so brutal in their treatment as well as assaulting people and so forth. So we've had the first step then of killing the juridical man, then we've went to the second stage of killing the morality in man, then we can go into the third stage which is killing man's uniqueness. So we start this third part off on a positive note, in that even under the worst conditions, Arendt argues that our uniqueness is maintained through a persevering stoicism. And so really this whole idea of a persevering stoic mindset comes from the philosopher Seneca, who's a famous stoic philosopher, of course, as well as tutor to Emperor Nero. And one of the things that we can get from his essay on anger is that what exactly makes us angry is the big question that's really asked by Seneca in the book. And he argues that it's the little things in our everyday life that make us angry. Those little annoyances, basically. Something like when you burn the toast, or you accidentally step in dog mess, or you accidentally miss the bus, for instance. It's all those little things that can make us angry in our everyday life. But what then is our reaction to this. How can we act in a positive way so we don't get angry every single time? Because of course these little things can happen to us. So his whole approach is then we should mentally prepare ourselves every single day thinking about all these little things that can go wrong. So you could just think to yourself, okay, woke up today, had a nice breakfast, and what's going to happen is that I'm going to be late for the bus and I'm going to meet some people that I think are just absolutely the worst, complete buttheads in my life. And then what's going to happen is traffic's going to be horrible when I come back and I'm going to come back and then the tea's going to be cold by the time I get there and my dinner, I'm just going to just try to persevere through it and it's just going to be all just horrible but it's going to be okay and then sort of you can see from that mindset you sort of condition yourself for all those little things that can happen and then by conditioning yourself when they do happen you're not suddenly taken aback by it not surprised by it because you've prepared yourself for it so suddenly when 
that whole process of burning the toast happens, then you go, ah, okay, whew, now you've happened, Mr. Burning the Toast. Now I can get on with my life, I can get on the rest of my day without making so much a big thing out of it. However, then we can use this stoic mindset and then go into what Hannah Arendt wants us to use here is that stoicism within the concentration camps because what exactly could people do in that given situation is in a comparable way you have an absolutely horrific example and conditions in which people are living in but also you can kind of condition yourselves and prepare yourself for what could potentially happen on a given day and so therefore you sort of retain an aspect of control from all this as well as having a really good sort of coping mechanism within trying to survive this really horrifically horrible experience. So from this then, Hannah Arendt says that this last part of killing someone's unique identity is really the hardest part to kill because it could only happen once we have a destruction of the first two once the judicial is being killed as well as the morality is being killed then and only then can we arrive at the death of the unique identity within us how exactly is that possible so hannah rent says the ways in which it could happen is numerous but she does give us an example in which people are treated like cattle and treated like herd and like a herd like mentality that people then have got to have so people's own uniqueness and individuality is completely taken away from them and i've got a quote here they begin with the monstrous conditions in the transports to the camps when hundreds of human beings are packed into a cattle car stark naked glued to each other and shunted back and forth over the countryside for days on end. They continue upon arrival of the camp, the well-organized shock of the first hours, the shaving of the head, the grotesque camp clothing, and the end in utterly unimaginable tortures so gauged as not to kill the body at any event, not quickly. Here we have this whole cattle-like nature in which people are treated like. They are stripped of their clothes, put together, shoved together like ultimately sardines into a cattle car and therefore shunted back and forth naked and we arrive at the camp. How are then people treated in the camp? Absolutely heinously again, shaved and heads, put on all the same clothing, and what does that ultimately do? Strip you of all your personal identity. Because that's, of course, one of the main ways in which we express ourselves and have our own form of uniqueness, is that clothes provide a really solid way of saying, who am I? How can I express myself? You go out and you buy, let's say, your favorite band's t-shirt, or you go and dress in your favorite sports team's gear such as basketball jersey or soccer t-shirt or football t-shirt it all manages to express our individuality in some way but once you strip that all away 
that's stripping away part of someone's personality and individuality as well as our hair just the mere fact that it's shaved removes all that uniqueness of course through going to the hairdressers and getting it styled in a certain way equally then strips all that individuality away so not only do we have this whole trying to strip somebody's personal identity away but also we have this relation into trying to strip someone's mental identity away as well and make them lose their sense of self and Hannah Arendt gives an example, she says it's a mental disease that's organic in origin but does not give any name to identify it whatsoever unfortunately. But I think what she means here is Alzheimer's because within Alzheimer's we have that idea of it slowly erasing all traces of an individual's memory. So we have really not only a physical sense of trying to strip everybody away but like alzheimer's trying to strip all people's own idea of their personality and individuality away on the mental side of it as well and then this whole stripping away of someone's unique identity and the destruction of it explains why there's little to no revolts that took place at the camps and why People marched into the gas chambers without any complaints. As she states, I've got a quote here, to destroy individuality is to destroy spontaneity. Man's power to begin something new out of his own resources, something that cannot be explained on the basis of reactions to environment and events. Nothing then remains but ghastly marionettes with human faces, which all react with perfect reliability when going to their own death, and which do nothing but react. Nothing is more terrible than these processions of human beings going like dummies to their death. Hannah Arendt touches upon something that makes us human at this point, and deep philosophical point about what exactly makes us up as people and that is how do we all stop from being the same part of it is of course our personality part of it is of course expression of our personality but also we have this incredible relation into spontaneity and that you can't suddenly just classify people down and you can't just expect people to react in the same way. And you can't just categorize people down to say, if we do this, then they'll react that way. It's just like that would be advertising's absolute dream, wouldn't it? To say, if we just did this, then everybody would love it, but then it would go and buy the product. But you can't do that because people are not going to all react in exactly the same way. But here because of this lack of spontaneity and because there's this all stripping away of someone mentally as well as physically then everybody goes into more and more like this animal-like herd-like mentality and become robotic and the same and the more and more it's stripped away the less and less everybody comes themselves anymore and so that's one of the deep points really that's made out of it is what makes us human is our spontaneity and 
the fact that we can't be categorized or put into boxes whatsoever. And so overall, rounding off, what can we say for each of the three parts? So for the first part, then the first step is to kill the judicial in man. How is that possible? Because the people put into the camps and the camps themselves are out with the traditional judicial system. The second step of killing the morality in man, how is that possible? Because there's no way for someone to do good or a way for someone to become a martyr. There's only a choice between murder and murder, and even suicide is not an option, as they'll kill your family. And then we go into the last step, the third step of killing man's unique identity. And as we've just said, how is that possible? Because people are treated like cattle and herd-like. They're physically stripped of all their belongings. Yet this still remains the hardest part of an individual to kill. Once this unique identity is destroyed, people lose all sense of what it's like to be human, spontaneous and unpredictable, and become robotic and predictable. Many thanks for listening to the episode. I hope you enjoyed my discussion of the section Total Domination in Hannah Arendt's The Origins of Totalitarianism. Feel free to check out the website at www.dissectingphilosophy.com. I have a nice blog entry currently on Gilles Deleuze's concept of difference, which is a nice wee short read as well that's nice and simple and easy enough to understand. If you fancy having a wee read over that and learning all about the philosophy of Gilles Deleuze, also, feel free to check out the Patreon page where there's currently a discussion of Slavoj Zizek's pandemic COVID-19 shakes the world going on. But the first episode of that is free and each subsequent episode requires a subscription under the £5 tier. Feel free to tip me a coffee at coffee.com forward slash dissecting philosophy ko-fi.com forward slash dissecting philosophy. And lastly, I can be found on Twitter at I am a rubber man. And as we've discussed the topic of suicide, I think it's important that we give out the suicide prevention numbers as well for anybody having suicidal thoughts or know somebody who's having suicidal or dark thoughts. So the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, which is the American number, is one eight hundred two seven three. 8255 and the number here in the UK is for the Samaritans and that number is 0330 Many thanks for listening and I hope you'll join me next time.